0: Welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast. I'm Andrew Clyden, and today we are going to run an interview that Miles did with Amanda Stuck. She is the Democratic candidate for the 8th Congressional District. So we're going to jump into that shortly. But before we did, I wanted to uh, talk about something kind of interesting. And today my guests are Miles Danhausen and Deborah Fitzgerald. Got both of them in the studio to talk with me for the first time. That's going to be really exciting. And uh, the thing that we wanted to kind of jump into, because it's it's been talked about a little bit, especially during uh, a, a more Heated season like we have right now when you, you've got the election going on is the letters to the editor section so uh, I'm I'm gonna approach this from uh the the layman side of things I want to know what the letters to the editor section is how it works how you select what's going to go in how people submit all that kind of stuff uh, and we'll just talk through the whole process and and how you make your selections and and that kind of stuff uh, so why don't we why don't we jump right into that thank you both for coming on the podcast and uh I guess miles tell me what the letters to the editor section is and how it works this is something we've wanted to talk about for a little while Um, we have a
1: very robust letters section nowadays in fact like what ends up in print is probably less than half of the number of submissions we actually get each week at this point, um, which when Deb Fitzgerald joined our our team this last spring was one of the things she noticed right away. And she, she was like, man, this is, this is a great sign. You have a lot of community engagement. You have this robust letters to the editor section. And as she was saying that, I'm also sort of rolling my eyes of like, yeah, I know, it's a lot of submissions and I am happy to hand them off to you now. <laughs> um, it, because like the letter section is... You know, it's where your citizens get a chance to have their input. And um, for us as reporters, it's a way for us to hear what people care about. And a lot of times you get story ideas out of it. Um, you will get at least a vibe for what some people in the community are feeling. But, Deb, I think you could probably speak to this, too. You also have to weigh that of, like, is this a total community vibe? Or is this, like, a, a one or two very loud people vibe sending sending their letters into us each week and i'm curious to have like what what it was it like for you to come into this and then kind of get that the letter submission filter going your way And then just getting inundated with this in a community that you're not totally new to. You've been here years before, but Mm -hmm. after a 10-year gap.
2: Right. And, you know, it's because it's so unusual, it's unusual for everything, right? So when I first got here, it was was all about um, COVID. And now that has shifted, I would say, probably over the past month into um, a really, really uh, regular – volley of letters on the presidential election. So so I'm I'm really interested to see what happens after the election. You know, COVID will still be with us. However, we won't have these the volume of political letters that we're receiving.
1: Maybe. <laughs> So I'm wondering. Depends how long we're going to be counting votes, right?
2: Well, and I really wonder, you know, what's going to happen at that point. Um, But I I do recall when I first got here that um, it was uh, a variety of issues that people wrote about. Like it never seemed to be you know, any one topic that people had picked up. And if a couple of people had picked it up, then we always use the percentage uh, ratio to figure out how many people actually care about this one particular issue, right? So if one person takes the time to write, then maybe, you know, a hundred people are thinking about, you know, the same thing. So, you know, you kind of get a feel for, you know, what people are talking about and what they're thinking about it. Because let's face it, to actually sit down and write something and send it to a newspaper requires a lot more thought than that one-off that you're, you know, throwing on social media, which takes no thought, no deliberation, you know, and so to sit down and write a letter like that is, it, it takes some forethought and, and people then really care about it. That's what it signals to me.
0: Right. Miles, you alluded to the fact that we get more letters than we can actually print in a given week. And let, let's say that wasn't the case. What are some of the, the stipulations that people that send letters in have to abide by? So if somebody sends in a letter, there's no guarantee that it's going to run. It needs to meet certain requirements, correct?
2: Absolutely. Yes. We have some basic requirements, which is we need to know who the letter writer is, where they live, um, a phone number. We need them to abide by the word limit because we do get so many, which is 350 words at this point, but we may actually be reducing that even more so that we can fit more letters in. Um, They need to meet the deadlines, which is always Mondays at noon, Um, and they also need to not deliver us unsubstantiated quotes, not deliver unsubstantiated facts and, you know, name-calling, finger-pointing, um, just general nastiness, you know, that's the, that's not going to survive in the letter.
1: Yeah, we we made the decision to stop posting certain news articles on Facebook because we didn't want to be a platform, our Facebook page, to be a platform for people to just um, have unproductive conversations about our community and and basically be an irritant and the thing that raises anxiety in our community. And the same thing with the letters page, we don't want it to just become... And in fact, this explains one policy we have, which is you can only submit one letter every 30 days. Mm -hmm. We'll only publish one letter from you in 30 days. And that grew out of, we, we happened to get like a, we found that our letters page was basically a spot where five or six different letter writers were just writing back and forth to each other in public on our page. And it just became a little tiresome. And a lot of the same grievances, and they were just having this public conversation. And we wanted to make sure that, People didn't start just like glossing over that because it's like, oh, here's these people again. You want to get different voices. So people turn to the letters page and say, like, I wonder if there's some interesting viewpoint that might be informative for me today or just like change my perspective on on my community. So there's that aspect of it as well. Um, So we have some of those. Hopefully, those guidelines lead to better conversations there, um, a wider variety of voices and I mean, that might take us to the, uh, the next point is one of the major points right now. We're in election season. You mentioned, I'm going to backtrack here. You mentioned we have uh, Amanda Stuck on the podcast today. Um, just to get, get rid of any notions of bias, we have um, um invite out to Mike Gallagher, and we believe he will be on the podcast on Tuesday next week. So we are hitting both sides there. But that I bring that up because there are those who think we filter out letters from opinions that we editorially may or may not like and that's that's not what we're after at all a lot of the filtering starts with what deb mentioned is just like facts name calling unsubstantiated information but um maybe deb you can speak more to like how we make that decision and and finding balance in that uh, that letters page.
2: And from, well, from there, then it's like, you know, really segmenting off uh, the subject matter. So I have a, you know, a bunch of letters. They all meet all of the basic requirements. So then they go into different folders, Democrat, Republican, neutral, local issues. And that's about what people are, you know, kind of writing these days. And so then once I have all of those folders full, knowing that only a fraction, maybe 25% of those letters, are actually going to make it in print, then I have to take a look at the best of that folder of, you know, Democratic uh, views, the best of the viewpoints of the Republicans— the best of the neutrality and the best of the local issues. I do tend to slant toward local issues if people are writing about those now just because of the sheer volume of letters that only talk about the presidential election. Um so so really it's not it's it, it's also a matter of quality opinion and like I said, you know, forethought, thinking about what you're writing before you send it in, not just raving. And so that quality is going to show, and then that person's letter will be selected
0: as a result. Right. You, you said it, it's about selecting the best from each of these folders, but that when you say best, you're not talking about what you agree with most. You're talking about the quality of the writing because, again, we're trying to put out the best newspaper we can every week, and, and this is a part of it. That selection part is is part of the process, but it's not necessarily you curating based on your own individual beliefs or political biases, correct?
2: No, it's my own curated individual belief about what good writing is. And, <laughs> I mean, you know, I've been in this industry for a very long time and, um, you know, I, I, believe I know what good writing is when I see it. So that, that's exactly what it is.
1: And it's important to point out that like, if there ends up being, uh, a perceived bias, I would say that we, and, and you're more in tune with this now, Deb, over the last few months, because I haven't had to, to, to do the filtering. Um, Thank you, uh, but
2: <laughs> I'll get you on something.
1: Else, Miles. <laughs> we de- definitely have. I would say we have more um, letters that are submitted from the liberal side of the spectrum than from the conservative side. Would you say that's correct?
2: That was the way that it was, um, but that has slowly shifted. I would. I would say that now um, in the folders they're pretty even. So, okay. and that to me is is. In, incredibly heartening, yeah. I mean, because i I want people to know that um, it is a place where all opinions are welcome. Um, that doesn't mean that all opinions are equal, obviously, right. but all are welcome and 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 so whenever I get letters across a variety of the political spectrum, then I always think, you know they feel like they're going to be at least given an opportunity right. So we're not seen as, you know, biased one way or the other. And I think that, um, so I, you know, I think we're doing a good job in that regard. I'm sure that there are some people who still, you know, think what they think. But, you know, we're, I don't think that anything that we can say is necessarily going to change their mind
0: right.
1: about that. So And, what, and what, why we want to talk about this, is just give people a glimpse into, like, at least the thought process that goes through it and all the mm-hmm. things we have to consider because, when we put the paper out each week, we want people to read it and think that we're doing our an, our honest best to um, report the facts, report the stories that matter to this community. And a lot of people don't understand the difference between a letters page and a news story or a press release and things like that. And that's something we, I think newspapers in general across the country probably need to do a better job of teaching people what the, what the differences in certain parts of the paper are. There's a difference between punditry And news reporting. Mm -hmm. And most of what most people consider news is actually just punditry because they're watching Fox, CNN, MSNBC. And if you.
2: Right. Or curated websites that look like news sites. That have nothing to do with news. And that will actually say in their, you know, mission about statements exactly what they are. Yeah. Which is entertainment.
1: And so in our case, when you look at the letters page, yes, that's a big page. Sometimes it spills over to a couple of pages. Um, That is not reporting. That is Mm -hmm. not us spouting our opinions that is the the community giving their two cents on it Mm -hmm. and so that's just this is just the process that that we go through and trying to figure out the way to best give the most perspectives from our own hometown and like you said i i think we'd all in this office are very much looking forward to the end of the presidential election so Mm -hmm. people can share thoughts whether it's just a thank you to a community member who helped them out or um Uh, comments about your schools and education or what your town board is doing. Like, I think more information, more letters about our local communities would probably be more helpful than... The presidential election, although I'm not selling, saying that people shouldn't write about that, too. Obviously, mm-hmm. that's very important. But. Right.
2: Right. But it is interesting, the sheer number of people who are very, very engaged with the presidential election. So <laughs> yeah. um, I do want to you know, just remind people that we don't publish political letters um, in the newspaper prior to an election. So I've had this um, in the paper now for the past few weeks. Um, The last, the deadline for anybody to get a political letter in is this Monday, October 19 at noon. So no letters will be, uh, no political letters will be in the paper October 30. Next week's paper will be the last one.
0: Great. Well, I think that that's the perfect overview for what this section is. And, and hopefully we answered some questions about about how we make our selection process and stuff like that moving forward. Uh, we're going to jump into our interview with Amanda Stuck. And like Miles mentioned, we're hoping to have Mike Gallagher on the podcast next week. Uh, so we'll we'll continue on with our election coverage as long as we you know need to. Uh, and then we'll, we'll move on to dealing with some other stuff. So thank you both for coming on and chatting about this. I hope to have you both on again uh, to talk a little bit more Uh, about the newspaper and how it comes together because i think that that's something that uh, people would be interested in hearing about and i think it's a great way for us to kind of dig into it on the podcast so uh, thank you again and uh, we'll jump into that interview right now
1: uh, Amanda, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Well,
3: thanks for having me. I'm really glad to be with you.
1: What has it been like running for office during a time when you can't do all the normal campaign events?
3: Uh, it is. I was just saying earlier, this is the weirdest campaign cycle I've ever been through. And, you know, I've been in the Assembly now for three terms. I have certainly have run my share of campaigns, and this is like nothing we expected. You know, when we started this campaign, I certainly knew that Mike Gallagher would outrage me. He just simply is able to, you know, rub elbows with lobbyists, be... He- comes from wealth and privilege, it's much easier for him to raise money than a working person like myself. So we really had a strategy of being on the ground in order to win this campaign and talk to voters. With the pandemic, that really changed our whole strategy. And we really had to adapt quickly to figuring out how to do things like fundraisers online and meet and greets online and how to reach out to groups and set up Zooms with their members in order to still be able to talk to people. Even things like collecting signatures to get on the ballot became something we had to figure out in a whole new way from what we've always done. So it certainly has been interesting, but I think it's also been inspiring in some ways just to see how people really adapt quickly and are able to find solutions even in the hardest of times.
1: Well, so so campaigning is no different than it's been for every person trying to run a business and basically reinventing and, and relearning everything on the fly. Um it,
3: yeah, exactly.
1: Tell me a little bit about your background. Um, I know you are a, a three-term representative in the Wisconsin Assembly. What should people know about you? Where do you, where were you born and raised? What's your, what's your work experience and background?
3: So I was born right here in Appleton, Wisconsin, where I still live. I always say you're going to have to take me screaming and kicking from the Fox Valley because uh, <laughs> I love this place and will never leave. But I was born to two young parents who really were not involved in politics at all whatsoever. My mom was a waitress, and my dad worked in a grocery store when I was born. And they, again, weren't really involved in politics because they were just busy trying to survive. But it was a family friend who took me to see Bill Clinton speak when I was 10, that when he was first running for president. And I still remember to this day standing out in this miserable cornfield, looking around at all these people who had come out to hear him speak and really being inspired by the fact that, that they thought he could make their lives better. And it was at that moment that I decided that that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to help people and make their lives better. And so at age 10 on, whenever we'd have to write about what we wanted to be when we grew up, I would write Bill Clinton. I didn't really know what that meant. I just knew I wanted people to believe I could make their lives better. And so I started working on campaigns at 16. It really was at age 19, though, that I understood why those policy mattered and why people stood in the field that day when I gave birth to my first son at 19. I still remember to this day sitting in the hospital room, holding him, hoping the nurses would not come in to see me because I didn't want them to see me crying, and I didn't want to have to tell them I didn't know where we were going to go. I was 19. I was a freshman in college. My parents weren't able to help me, and I really didn't know where we were going to go. And in those days and weeks following that day were some of the hardest times of my life where I really knew what it was like to have $10 for the week and have to decide if I was going to eat or go to school and work or you know, working two jobs and coming home at night to do my homework and take care of my son and just crying because I was so exhausted. It was that that really led me to understand why things like student loans matter and why programs like food share, or housing assistance, help people and really were the only reason I was able to get my education and pull myself out of poverty. And so when I ran for office in 2014, that was really the experience I wanted to bring and really work for people who were living what I had gone through. And actually, before I even graduated from uh, college with my degree, a man named Steve Kagan had come in to talk to my class uh, about his campaign for Congress. And I had signed up to volunteer thinking, oh, this is how I learn more how to become Bill Clinton. So <laughs> I signed up to volunteer, work on the campaign, and uh, ended up working in his congressional office when he won that campaign in 2006 for this eighth congressional district. And it was there that I learned that it's not just the policy, but also the representatives because he was so committed to being in the district, not sitting in Washington. And he remembered the stories that he heard of people saying that they were going to die if we didn't pass the Affordable Care Act. And he would bring those stories to Washington and tell them. And that commitment to people and to sharing their stories really inspired me to be that same kind of representative. Um, you know, in terms of work background, uh, when I was putting myself to school, I worked as a rural mail carrier. I also served in AmeriCorps, working for Habitat for Humanity in the Red Cross. When Steve Kagan lost in 2010, I went to work for the Applicant Housing Authority, the same housing program that had once helped me. So I do have quite a varied background, Uh, but because of student loan debt, even to this day as a state representative, I still work multiple jobs. So I'm also a licensed substitute teacher, and I'm, again, teaching in person right now in the Kimberly School District, (laughs) and I also am a registered personal care worker. So I work in a home with residents need help just with their basic daily living. And so I see so many perspectives of the issues that are facing us, whether it is in healthcare or in our school districts.
1: When you, you've been in the assembly now for three terms, you talked about your experience as a single mother. How does that experience um, inform your work as a representative um, in, in like a tangible way? Like what perspectives does that bring to the floor when you're talking about actual legislation?
3: Yeah, so, in so many ways, I, you know, it impacts the decisions I make because I know what it's like when we talk about policies and we're voting on things. And, you know, some of my colleagues want to blow things off that people should just work harder. Well, I know what it's like to be working two jobs and going to school full time and you still don't have enough to eat or you still are short for rent every single month. And it's not that you could possibly work harder, it's just either that job aren't paying wages that people can live off, or that we have a system that makes it so incredibly hard to get ahead. For instance, I just think of the credit act that Mike Gallagher voted against that would address things like credit scores that keep people down, that aren't even based on things that are fair. You can have false information on there that can actually make it more expensive for you to get a loan or make it harder for you to get a job even. There's so many things built into our system that make it so incredibly hard to get out of poverty. I often describe it as Scraping and clawing my way out of poverty just to hang on to my place in the middle class with a white knuckle grip because it is so incredibly hard. So anything we can do policy-wise to really make it easier for people and address systems that keep people down when there's no reason they should be, and take that into account when we're voting.
1: What are some of those policies that you look to, either in the assembly where you serve now or um, potentially in Congress if you were to get elected?
3: Yeah, so a couple of things. I mean, certainly we need to make sure that we have things like strong unions. So my husband's a sheet metal journeyman now, so we really are a working class family. And you know, I know what it's like to have a husband who's out there on the lift, on a roof, when it's minus 20 degrees outside and it's dirty, hard, dangerous work. And, you know, he does that work to provide for us, but he should have a fair wage and we should have good benefits for protecting unions to fight for those things. When we talk about raising the minimum wage, it's because people really need to be able to live off of their work. If you are working 40 hours a week, you still can't afford to live. That is something that is wrong with our system. And again, I'll even point back to that credit act that Mike Gallagher voted against, because I think that's so critical. Those little things that your credit score that sometimes isn't even accurate or reflective of how responsible you are with money. For instance, if you actually cancel a credit card, that hurts your credit score, even though that would be a responsible thing to do. And then that credit score, again, people can get in jobs that are better pay. It can keep people from accessing housing. It can keep uh, people from making them actually have to pay more for loans. So those kinds of systems we have to really look at. Education, things like student loans, again, knowing that I had to take out those loans just to get an education. And now that debt does hold me back and create such a burden. We need to really make sure education is affordable and that student loans don't have excessive interest rates and they can be uh, renegotiated at lower interest rates.
1: Yeah, that is um, I'm 41 years old and only in recent years did I learn some of the things that actually impact your credit that go, that are counterintuitive to um, what you might think. So like being frugal, doesn't necessarily help your credit, even though that is one of the things that people tell you to do all the time and, and be a responsible person. Um, like I, I would always buy cheap cars to try and keep not take on any debt, but it turns out like that doesn't prove that you can pay debt. So you need to you need to pay debt to earn more debt. <laughs> it's a yes. It's a complicated notion. <laughs>
3: exactly, it doesn't make sense, and yet it can have a real impact on families. Again, if they have to pay a higher interest rate for a loan because of it, or if a job does not choose them because their credit score is lowered. Those things really do have an impact on them.
1: You know, you've talked a lot about being a single mother and being a mom. Um, what, when you think of what that brings to the assembly, what is missing when we don't have those voices there? What's missing in the debate in some of our key issues?
3: Well, so I, the line I like to use is, "Moms you know when to hold somebody's hand and when to kick somebody's butt." And I think you certainly need all voices and experience at the table. And being a mom and a single mom is certainly a perspective that needs to be there. So somebody who really knows what it's like to try and figure out how to work and pay for childcare that is now more expensive than paying for college. Or to be a parent who is actually dealing with school, especially in this time where It is a big change for everybody trying to adjust to actually have somebody who's been there who can be at the table sharing that experience and who can say, hey, look, guys, we don't have time for games because I do know what it's like when you can't get childcare, but if you don't work, you're not going to eat either. And what a terrible situation that is, or maybe a childcare, but maybe it's not great or you don't trust it because it's not, you know the best care, but it's what you can't afford. And trying to make those decisions and balance it all is a struggle families face every day. And we need somebody who knows really what that is like. So when you're making those votes, when you're writing those bills, you have that experience to write something that truly can help people here or to vote against the things that would actually hurt them and make it harder for them.
1: You mentioned child care. That's a, an issue that it's a nationwide problem. In Door County, we had a daycare center in Sturgeon Bay closed down abruptly last spring. Um, some of that related to COVID, but uh, it seems like that was going to happen with or without the pandemic. Luckily, some people rallied to open a new, to reopen the center. But there's still a childcare shortage here, as there is all over the country. Um, what what can Wisconsin or Congress do to help people who are struggling to find childcare?
3: So this is uh, certainly a complicated issue. There's so many parts to this, and the pandemic, in particular,ly has brought up this issue because you're looking at childcare workers who make very little being asked to really bear the brunt of so much of this and be on the front lines still trying to care for children, especially of our healthcare providers who still need childcare while they're out there protecting all of us. And so it really has highlighted the shortage, how it is hard to find staff that want to work for a lot of times $9 an hour maybe, even though they do have to get certified and go through training and all of that. You know, when they can make more than that at Walmart or McDonald's mm-hmm. so that are working these hard jobs for low pay, it's hard to find these. So we need to increase pay, especially as we want to increase standards. If people are going to get that extra education or get that certification, they need to be paid accordingly. We also need to look at things like making sure everybody has 4K. So once you expand that school program, bring those kids in earlier, we know that pays off even towards the end of life by reducing our prison system. So there are huge gains by making sure there's universal 4K. We've had proposals at the state level for things like tax deductions for child care that we haven't been able to get votes on or even be hearings on. Those kinds of things can be helpful. I often say, you know, tax deductions help you on the back end. It doesn't really help you when you still don't have enough to pay child care this week. So I don't always know that those are the best solutions, but sometimes they're options. But we certainly need to look at providing more programs. You know, we do have some programs here that help people who are under certain income requirements. To pay for child care, the problem is is that those limits are pretty low. And truthfully, we probably need to raise those limits to cover more families just because the limits are so low that it's really hard to qualify, even though most families, it's not that they actually have the income to pay for it, they just don't meet these arbitrary Uh, income guidelines. So looking at increasing some of those to get more help to people that are working and in that gap where they just make a little too much but actually can't afford it are some things we need to do. I know I've done some work with the United Way here on the benefit cliff and really looking at how we balance that so that people can continue to get uh, increases in their wages or promotions without being afraid that their child care is going to go away.
1: You know, some of your answers there just Illustrated how complicated this problem is with childcare because when you talk about the low wages that these workers are paid, and I think anybody who drops their kid off at daycare um, realizes that they would like to see the people taking care of their child paid more. But you do that, and that increases the cost of the childcare. Um, so you, you run into a catch twenty two, and even by if you have universal four k, then that also hurts the childcare centers because now the one place where they can make the most profit in in that business. Is taken away. When you take away the, the three and four-year-olds, your, your ratio of, of student to um, teachers is so low. One-year-olds and two-year-olds, you're talking about a four to one. Once you get to that four-year-old from everybody I've talked to in the industry, that's when you can start having like a 12 to one ratio. And that's where you make the profit to pay for the younger stuff. So I don't know if you know the answer. I know it's, it's very complicated. Is there anything that you look at that might balance some of those problems?
3: Yeah, so I mean so I've heard that from child care providers, their concerns about the universal four K. I would say you definitely still should make sure everybody has that just because again, the science is so clear on the benefits to society as a whole by having universal four K. Mm-hmm. But we actually but we do have to admit that this will cause a problem for an already strained child care system. And so that's where we may need to look at does the government have to put some funds or resources there or provide some assistance in another way to address that. I don't have all the answers, that's for sure. But when you talk about perspective and why it's important to have somebody who is a mom or has been a single mom there, part of it is being able to bring that experience about of course, we all want things to be better, but we have to be clear about how the answers are murky and how one solution for one problem can cause a problem in another area.
1: You have also talked about raising wages and giving people a fair wage. What, in, in your opinion, is that fair wage? And would you be in favor of increasing minimum wage?
3: Absolutely. I am in favor of increasing minimum wage. And the truth is that, you know, people hear that and they get scared and start saying, oh, everybody's going to get paid the same wage. That's not necessarily true. So, for instance, you know, I have teenagers who work in fast food. They don't necessarily need to be making the same wage that an adult person who's supporting a family does. So there are ways to qualify that for certain workers. Definitely, even if you're working in fast food and you are supporting a family, you should be making a fair wage. And we have to be honest that all of the workers in things like fast food industry are not all teenagers. They are people who are supporting families and they need to be making a fair wage, especially when we continue to see companies making record profits. When we see CEOs getting these huge bonuses and just making ridiculous amounts of money, the truth is that's not a real business model. If their employees are requiring the government to subsidize them, they need to actually be paying their employees a fair wage, that that doesn't become the burden of the taxpayers.
1: Let's talk about COVID a little bit. Um, You're in the Wisconsin Assembly. Uh, There's been a lot of questions about how the legislature has handled um, its response to COVID or not handled. Um, There's been a lot of questions about how Congress has handled it. Um, Let's start at the state level. What do you think um, the Wisconsin legislature, has it done all that it can to respond to the the COVID crisis?
3: It certainly has not. I mean, it's been embarrassing this last week to see the headlines come out about how Wisconsin is the laziest legislature. And the truth is that hasn't just been now. That's how it's been every term I've been in the assembly. It, It has always shocked me. Again, particularly as somebody who has, always worked so hard in my life and worked multiple jobs and spent most of my days going from my first job to my second job to see how little legislators actually work, especially legislators that get paid a full-time salary. And it is just ridiculous to me that we haven't met, that we haven't done more. It certainly hasn't been for lack of trying on the governor's part. He has tried to call us into special sessions. The Democrats have put goes forward to try and bring some solutions to the problems we're facing and yet speaker Voss will not let us come together he will not even let us have a debate or a discussion where we could easily do that and unfortunately it's the citizens here in wisconsin that are paying for it because our economy is hurting businesses are going under people are struggling because their jobs are gone employment is running out uh, They need help, and yet we can't even meet to talk about solutions. We have not done enough. We definitely need to do more. Unfortunately, everything the governor does is challenged by the Republicans, not even because they can point to disagreeing with the science, but it's all about whether or not he has the power to do it. So we need to put aside these power struggles and actually focus on what we should
1: do here. You mentioned the, the special sessions and not even being willing to actually have these special sessions on that from the standpoint of Republican leadership. Um, I've talked to other folks, uh, our local representatives, and they said there's not it's all a show just to go into special session. That's not where the work gets done. The work gets done in in committee meetings and and outside of those sessions. Do you, Does that. Bring true to you. I mean, how does where does the work get done at the state legislature? And is there a value in holding those special sessions?
3: Yeah, I would say that it doesn't even make sense for him to say that, because when we vote on bills in special session, that is how funding gets released from the state or how a program gets created through the state. I mean, certainly the ideal process would be that you start at committees, so you can have discussions there and make some amendments early on and identify issues with bills early on to try and find consistency consensus and work on that. But if Robin Voss is not going to do that, then the governor has to call a special session. That is our opportunity to take action. And again, either create programs that they need to be created or designate funding if we have to do that. That is how it would get done if the Republicans are choosing not to work. If they choose not to go into the special session and do that, then what they're saying is they're choosing not to do the work and get it done.
1: In your campaigning, and obviously you're not doing parades, you're not doing um, big town halls and and a lot of the things that you would traditionally do in a campaign. But in I'm guessing you're doing a lot of virtual sessions and things like that and, and reaching out to people by phone and email. What are you hearing from constituents about what they care about in this election cycle?
3: Well, what is interesting is, so when we kicked off in July, we actually did or this was last July, so before the pandemic, went around the entire district and held a listening session in every single county in the district and really were out there before the pandemic hit. But it has been interesting, again, to hear sort of the difference in terms of what people are really talking about and concerned about. When we were first going around, again, healthcare care was a big one that we were hearing people concerned about the cost of medications. People concerned about what was going to happen with the Affordable Care Act and for testing existing condition. conditions. Uh, environment also is a huge one, especially in the 8th Congressional District, because no matter where you go in this district, people have water issues, whether it's Wells in Kiwanee and Door County or uh, you know PFAS and Marinette, Lead in Green Bay. Everybody has water issues. So that was a big thing we heard about back 49 in terms of water issues. Education, of course, is a big one. Student loan debt. Of course, when the pandemic hit, everything became about COVID and everything related to COVID. So I know in my state assembly office, we have had record number of cases of requests for help with unemployment. Hmm. We know that that has been a huge issue here in Wisconsin about just the delays people face, how they couldn't get through to anybody and what a mess that really has been. That has been a big issue. Businesses reaching out, even some of the staples of our community, like our YMCA's and the PAC here, the Performing Arts Center in Appleton, you know, reaching out, trying to figure out how to make it through this and what kind of response they need from us. So everybody really trying to adjust, talk about what they need to get through this. That really has become the biggest thing, especially with schools now having started in September. We're hearing a lot from teachers that are frustrated school administrators that are frustrated, parents that are frustrated trying to adjust to all of this, really being frustrated with the lack of leadership at the federal level in terms of real answers and solutions to get through this.
1: Given all of that and given the cloud that COVID puts over everything, all the other issues and that it, it sucks up so much of the oxygen in the room. If you are elected and, and you do win this seat, what do you think are some priorities or a priority that you think you might be able to get done and, and make movement on um, in those first that first term in Congress?
3: The number one thing has to be changing the tone of politics because Even when we talk about the response to COVID, one of the biggest things is just the partisan divide that stops us from even really being able to engage in true discussions about the issue to figure out how to move forward. One of the things I'm most proud of, of my time in the assembly, is creating the Wisconsin Future Caucus, which is a caucus of millennial legislators, a bipartisan caucus that Adam Nealon, who is my co-chair, and I brought together to try and figure out how we can do better and stop the partisan divide. We won an award for that caucus last year, a national award we were recognized nationally for that work Here, I would like to continue that at the federal level because that really is our number one problem. Until we can figure that out, we're never going to figure out the rest of it. And being really committed to put people first above party, being willing to push back on party leadership when they don't want you to support something simply because they don't want the other side to credit and not because the idea or the bill is bad itself, is the number one thing we have to address so that we can move on and talk about the other issues.
1: How do you do that? So yeah,
3: it's hard. I mean, I will tell you, you know, even when we've done good work with the future caucus, I would like us to even do more. But it is incredibly hard, especially when you have leadership that doesn't want you to get along, that doesn't have any incentive or reason to support their members getting along and working together. But it really is about building relationships. If you see me as your friend and ally and not as your enemy, if you trust that what I'm telling you is true, if I say I'm going to vote for something or I won't vote for something and this lie, why, and you trust that I am really trying to meet you in the middle and trying to find a way to work with you, that, that is certainly the best place to start. It really is about relationships. You know, we hear stories in Madison all the time about how women liked it wasn't always like this, how Democrats and Republicans would actually go out. And have a drink together after the session, and they would be friends outside of the floor. Sure, you'd fight on the floor, make your points, but you would be friends after. And now it's not like that. Everything is so divided, you know. Democrats go to one reception, Republicans go to another, really just don't ever get to talk and get to know each other as people to build those relationships. And that is the number one thing you need to do.
1: Hmm. And when you, you mentioned leadership, and um, you know it's a generic term that we use a lot when we talk about politics now. Um, but when you say that, we're talking about the legislative leaders of the Republican and Democratic parties kind of controlling what makes it to the floor or what I would, I would controlling might be a strong word but really influencing what legislators feel they can what kind of freedoms they have to speak out is that a fair way to put that
3: Yeah I mean leadership really you know each party elects leaders of their party so people who really are um you know they hold titles like majority leader or minority leader within state assembly and They really are sort of the ones who coordinate the response from their party and who are in charge of sort of checking with their members on where they are on certain bills. And if they decide something is important to them, they can you know, twist members' arms. They can threaten campaign funds. They can threaten primaries, which they will do sometimes in order to get what they want. Or they can threaten that a project you want funded in your district won't happen. And it's unfortunate, but that is the truth of how politics works. That is why it is so important to elect people who are good people and who will stand up for that and who aren't more interested in their next race than they are in the people in their district that they represent.
1: We've got a couple more minutes here. So I'm, I'm curious what other priorities or what other things should uh, voters know about you heading into the election? I know a lot of people have already voted early already, which is great. They're voting. Um, but a lot of people are still saying that they need to make up their minds and are still really getting to know some of the the candidates, especially in the down ballot races for Congress and for local assembly, things like that. So what else would you like voters to know about you?
3: Oh, that's a really good uh, question. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, I guess I just want people to know how hard I work. You know, my commitment has always truly been to being in my district. I am a representative who has never I've really stayed in Madison. I think I've stayed overnight in Madison two times out of the six years that I have been in the assembly because I've always been committed to being in my district and showing up at events in my district, showing up at meetings in my district. And I would really take the same approach should I go to Madison. And it's one of my criticisms of Mike Gallagher when he wouldn't hold public town halls here as a congressman and he wouldn't show up at events in the district. But yet he was in Washington all the time. You know, we need somebody who wants to go there and do the work, but then who will come back to the district and really understand how their goats Will impact people here. And a lot of the bills I put forward have been because of that commitment. You know, my Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women bill was because I listened to the constituents that brought that forward to me here in my district, because I show up at events and I meet people to talk about the issues that matter to them. My Hmong Veterans bill has been because of my commitment to working with the Hmong community here and showing up at their events. And I think it's just really important to note that there is a difference between a congressman who sits in Washington and decides to grace the people of the district with his presence at election time, but isn't really showing up to do the work until then.
1: All right. Well, Amanda, thank you so much for taking the time to join
0: us here in the podcast this week.
3: All right. Thank you.